Well, I think it's very important to have TSA there on the front lines, but that's only if they're doing the right things, if their screening methods are efficient, effective, and affordable. And right now, they're, to a large degree, none of those things. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. My usual co-host, Jay Craig Williams, uh, is unable to join us today. We, of course, would like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, a company that offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms at suntrust.com slash law. And also Clio, the web-based practice management solution, which is available at goclio.com. Well, in, with the uh, with the Thanksgiving holiday uh, just around the corner and uh, over the last few weeks, there has been a huge backlash against the Transportation Safety Administration, the TSA, over full-body scanners and pat-downs at select airports across the country. There have been uh, any number of horror stories coming up, uh, like the one of... Uh, that took place in a North Carolina airport where a TSA inspector uh, is said to have asked a woman flight attendant, a breast cancer survivor, to remove her prosthetic breast as part of a pat-down. Uh, the questions remain about has the TSA and uh, and the government gone too far when it comes to security, or are full-body scanners and pat-downs the best way to combat terrorism as terrorists uh, become ever more creative in their tactics. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we are going to take a look at the growing controversy over full-body scans and pat-downs at airports, the fallout from travelers, the potential legal issues, and the impact on traveling and what this all holds for our listeners. Joining us Today, to help us discuss these issues are two guests. Uh, first of all, we would like to welcome Patrick Smith. Patrick is an airline pilot, author, and air travel columnist. He writes the popular column on Salon.com called Ask the Pilot, and he also has a website of his own, uh, AskThePilot.com. Uh, Patrick lives just outside of Boston himself and has visited more than 70 countries, uh, he always asks for a window seat, he says. Uh, you can find uh, much more about him at his website, askthepilot.com. We'd like to welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer today, Patrick Smith. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is a returning guest, Jim Harper. Jim is Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. As Director of Information Policy Studies, Jim Harper focuses on the difficult problems of adapting law and policy to the unique problems of the information age. Harper is a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. He is the author of Privacilla.org, a web-based think tank devoted exclusively to privacy, 
Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jim Harper. Thank you, Bob. Nice to be with you. Well, uh, Patrick, I'd like to start off with with you. Uh, You're a pilot. Uh, You've uh, written about this stuff uh, quite a bit recently. Tell us your your perspective on on the current controversy. Has has the TSA gone too far or not? Well, it's interesting. I've been writing about TSA uh, for eight years, and it's not until pretty recently that there's been kind of a, a grassroots uh, resistance to some of their tactics. Um, and I think it's uh, it's the deployment of the body scanners that has pushed uh, pushed it over the edge and brought it to the next level. Um, I have mixed feelings about the scanners uh, specifically or the controversy about the scanners. Um, on one hand, it's nice to see some resistance finally being galvanized. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, I think this conversation and and all of the, the brouhaha over the scanners and pat-downs distracts us somewhat from asking more important questions about TSA's approach to security overall. I guess what I mean by that um, is a couple of things. Um, the scanners are just a symptom of, I think, a greater uh, dysfunctional philosophy that TSA has towards security. Um, primarily, what I mean by that is we have this approach, this uh, system that treats every single person who flies, from an infant child to an elderly woman to a uniformed crew member, as a potential terrorist. And we're going through millions of bags every day looking for each and every conceivable weapon uh, belonging to every one of the, you know, two point whatever million people who fly every day. That just is not a sustainable approach um, in a system, an air transport system as vast as ours. I mean, you can't keep knives out of maximum security prisons. And the idea of keeping knives out of, uh, you know, millions of suitcases every day is just is just insane. Well, uh, I want to come back to some of those points you've raised, and they're important points, but I do want to make sure we get Jim Harper into the conversation uh, right off here at the start. Jim, I would wonder if you could just kind of give us uh, you know, your, your general perspective uh, on this, uh, in, in your sense of, of whether the TSA has gone too far here or whether this is necessary. Well, I think it, probably, the, probably the conclusion is that TSA has gone too far. It has to be only a probable conclusion because we're we don't actually have enough information from the government uh, to to decide for ourselves. I think the public and and I'm with the public on this is is starting to recognize a a yawning gap between their experience of air travel and what TSA says uh, the security situation is. I came across a fascinating statistic just a couple of days ago uh, in one paper pointing out that there have been, over the last decade, 99 million domestic flights transporting 7 billion flyers. And we all know that in that decade, there have been zero bombs smuggled onto a plane and and none obviously detonated. The one that we're aware of that was a failed bomb was obviously coming in from overseas. So given the fact that, that this has not happened in 10 years why is it that the TSA is continually ratcheting up on domestic air travelers? Well, we don't we don't have the information we should have from from TSA or other parts of the federal government why why that is, and so I think people are reacting, saying you have to prove this security risk rather than just stating it. Uh, then we'll be in a better position to, to to balance. But until then, I think I think the burden starts to fall to the government, not just to claim that we should be afraid, 
but to show us the exact reasoning, the exact thinking behind these decisions. And that's an a very uh, that's a very good point about these scanners being deployed domestically. When uh, really, why why are they not? If we're going to deploy them at all, um, aside from privacy issues and whatnot, why are we not putting them in the Middle East and Africa and South America and, and places? where a bomb is much more likely to be smuggled aboard than, say, Pittsburgh or Des Moines. Well, you know, it raises an interesting point because I think, uh, you know, every suspected incident where there's, where there's been something uh, suspicious uh, brought aboard a plane has originated overseas, uh, from what I understand. Uh, but couldn't there be a... a, a uh, couldn't the TSA's response to that be, well, that shows we're doing a good job domestically? I, I mean, does does that speak for or against these heightened security measures at domestic airports? Well, that, that's one of the real conundrums of terrorism, if you will, is that it, it puts us in this box where uh, the fact that nothing has happened, although I, I, just, I just cited it because we don't have better information, the fact that nothing has happened can't be taken as proof that there isn't some threat or some risk. And if something does happen, that, that won't mean that it will be repeated or that something else will happen. And so we're, it, it sort of has us collectively chasing our tail, uh, particularly, I mean, and the government chasing our tail, uh, in, in it, the ever changing threat. Well, terrorism is itself an ever, ever changing threat. That's part of its logic. And so we have to uh, secure ourselves against every possible, according to this logic, against every possible vulnerability. For fear that that uh, the terrorists will exploit it, uh, we have to turn, I think, to a, another way of thinking about this, and that is to to acknowledge the idea that we accept some risks in life, in our in our ordinary lives. When we get behind the wheel of a car, we accept some risk in doing that. When we cross the street, we accept some risk. Heck, we accept risk when we um, go to the refrigerator and get a pizza out that you know that's been in there for a couple of days. But for some reason, the, the political dynamic around air travel is that there can be zero risk, and so we have to spend billions of dollars and millions of travelers' hours on on things that um, hone down on a already very very low risk. That's an excellent point. I, th- I think the scanners are the latest turn in what really is an unwinnable arms race. I mean, first we had the September 11th attacks, and pointy objects were suddenly contraband. Then came Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, and all of a sudden everybody has to take off their shoes. Next we had the the London liquid bomber uh, plot, and, and all of a sudden your shampoo and toothpaste are consigned to these little containers. Then we had the Christmas Day bomber, and as a result of that, we're all being body scanned and groped. And, and TSA says, well, we need to stay one step ahead of the terrorists, but the evidence would suggest that they've they've been one step ahead of us, and that shouldn't be shocking because... You know, plainly put, we need to face up to the fact that we will never, ever, ever be protected from every conceivable threat. I mean, there's always going to be a way for a resourceful enough uh, criminal or terrorist, whatever, to skirt whatever we put in place. And and that's not accepting defeat. It, it's just reality. And, and it forces us to step back and, as he just said, uh, learn to accept a certain level of risk. And meanwhile, the other thing we need to acknowledge is that the real nuts and bolts of airport security um, isn't the job of a TSA concourse screener. It, it goes on behind the scenes. It's, it's the job of FBI and, and CIA and counterintelligence. Um, you know, uh, old-fashioned detective work is, is a lot more 
effective at, at saving lives than, you know, arguing with somebody over the size of a toothpaste tube, which is what TSA is reduced to. Patrick, your your column this week uh, at Salon made the point that, that there are plenty of people, or at least a whole class of people at airports who don't have to go through these screening procedures at all. And this is something that nobody in the media is talking about. Um, while airline pilots and flight attendants have to go through basically the same screening as passengers, um, ground workers, many of the ground workers anyway, uh, people with full access to airplanes, um, caterers, the people who fuel the planes, the people who load the bags and do maintenance, um, aren't subject to regular TSA checks at all. All they need is an airport ID badge. Um, you know, and and granted, these people are background checked, and then there's biometric coding on their badges and whatnot. But they just go through a turnstile and and into the sterile area, where you know the story I like to tell is is the one about how one time when I was on duty in my uniform, I had a butter knife confiscated from my luggage by TSA. They actually had the, they actually held up the line for that, wasted my time, wasted everybody else's time, and meanwhile, you know, the person loading the galley or throwing the bags on board, just walked right through. I mean, if that isn't the most screaming, let me get this straight, um, you know, aspect uh, in all of airport security, what is? And and I'm not necessarily advocating that we put these other workers through the same draconian screening that passengers and crew go through. Maybe the answer is we need to scale back what we see on the concourse um, to concentrate on on more legitimate threats, more effective, uh, have more effective scaled back screening, um, and kind of meet the need halfway. And uh, that goes along with what we were just talking about, accepting a certain level of risk and, and reassessing the hierarchy of threat. Well, what, uh, I mean, you've both made the point that uh, some sort of a sustainable solution needs to be found here, something that we can live with and be comfortable with over the long term. Jim Harper, do you have a sense of what that solution looks like? Is it uh, is it uh, is it in the security measures? Is is it to be found somewhere else? Is it is it a reform of the TSA system much more broadly? Well, I'll talk about two changes that need to happen, and boy, these are some of the longest term. I don't I don't necessarily predict that they'll they'll happen anytime soon. One is a, a essentially a cultural change, understanding throughout our society, but especially among elites, the uh, opinion leaders commentators that uh, that terrorism is a strategy used to cause us to overreact the the goal is to get us to come off of our game and overspend shed civil liberties and privacy needlessly and so on and so forth right now we're we're just playing into that and so a cultural understanding here in the United States that, that that's what they're trying to do uh, may put us in a position and put our politics in a position to not overreact in the future. Some bad thing happens, and instead of we're going to get them and we're going to make sure this never happens again, our answer is this is reality. I like the, the fact that Patrick used that word. This is reality. This happens, but we're indomitable. Our country always wins because we're free, we're proud, we're strong. Um, that that's very bad for terrorism to have us take that attitude. It's the fear it's the fear based attitude we have now that sort of incites terrorism. They see our reactions and they're enthused by the fact that we do go spend a billion dollars in order to uh, you know respond to the underwear bombing threat. The other change, which is which is more along the legal lines, is one that I've realized has to has to happen if if the TSA or any security agency is going to do a good job, and that's to bring it within some conventional lawmaking processes. 
Right now, under the Transportation Security Act, the Transportation Security Administration gets to issue air security directives just on its own without any of the Administrative Procedure Act type processes, notice and comment to the public that uh, that other agencies use. And in particular, they're not subject to any particular standard of review. So you may know that that, uh, that federal agencies have to at least meet the arbitrary and capricious standard so that they're acting rationally within the goal set that uh, Congress has laid out for them. TSA doesn't have that. And so you see op-eds from Secretary Napolitano recently where she says, we're a risk-based agency. We're managing risk here. Well, they may say that, but they're not actually doing that. There's no documentation, and I, I think... Uh, Evidence of, of any actual risk management in the in the TSA or DHS is is pretty thin. But if they were subject to some kind of court review, they might have to actually do risk management that weighs the costs and benefits of various programs. You know, the billions of dollars we'll spend on these these um, imaging machines, the strip search machines, only require the bad guys out there, the potential terrorists, to shift their strategy by a small amount. That is probably toward uh, cavity based bomb materials. We spend billions of dollars to require them to shift their tactics by a, by a small margin. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't meet a risk management test. And I think that bringing TSA and DHS within a, a, a more solid legal framework will really help change that decision-making. You know, with respect to that first point, I, I, I can only wish that every American had that same outlook and that same, that same spirit. Um, I'm, I'm not so optimistic. I see fear becoming more entrenched. Um, we're becoming more reactionary. We, we're overreacting um, more and more to things. Um, you know, it's been a long time since September 11th, and, and we've got this, not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but this security industrial complex now that in a way encourages us to be more fearful and, and to overreact to these things and basically play into the terrorists' hands. Meanwhile, we've forgotten you know, the long, long history of, of air crimes, you know, that terrorists have been bombing planes and, and hijacking planes for 60 years. Um, this stuff did not begin on September 11th. On the contrary, the 1970s and 1980s were comparatively rife with, with bombings and hijackings on planes at airports. Most of that stopped, and we don't, we don't acknowledge that. Um, your second point um, about TSA itself um, We've created this this bureaucracy, this agency that really has a lot of power, and as you point out, not a lot of accountability. And those two things together are very dangerous. And um, those that needs to change for us to be safer and for this to become some sort of sustainable approach to security. Well, if if uh, TSA is not accountable in the way that a uh Federal agent, established federal agency would be in terms of its rulemaking. Uh, does does that mean that TSA is not accountable to citizens' complaints? I mean, do, do citizens have legal remedies here? I I know that um, at least a, I've heard of at least one lawsuit being filed. I think it was a pilot who filed a lawsuit against the TSA after he refused the the new safety measures uh, and and was put on paid leave. And I don't know what, what happens to that now that the TSA has changed its rules for pilots. But uh, as, as, as we hear more kind of horror stories of citizens going through these scans uh, and uh, getting patted down inappropriately and, uh, and uh, you know, you, you hear, you hear horror stories of TSA agents uh, perhaps enjoying some of these uh, images too much. And I don't know whether those are urban legends or, or true, but, but are there, 
Are there legal remedies, Jim? Is there a legal response to this other than legislative? Well, there are there are some responses. Only recently, last last few years, has TSA been standing up what what they call a redress office. It's mostly oriented toward responding to mistaken identity issues, where somebody has a name in common with someone on a watch list or a no-fly list. They've been working on ways to clear that kind of thing up. There is a report form on the TSA website where you could uh, complain about maltreatment on the part of a, a TSA agent, but uh, don't be surprised if that if that doesn't go very far. Uh, sure, there you can go into federal court. Uh, there, I don't know of a, a formal, you know, statutory basis, but but uh, go in claiming various rights violations and, and see what sticks. And there have been some lawsuits filed in there. I think I think the better remedy, the better solution here, might be to rethink in a big way. I've argued, in fact, for doing away with the TSA and and putting responsibility for security with airlines and airports who are in you know, acutely aware of the, the problem now, post-911, and who have all the incentives they need to be on this. Well, the, the federal government focuses on what it does best, which is the international work, the diplomacy, uh, and in, in some cases, the uh, uh, human factor <laughs> work. That's a very obscure way of talking about uh, Afghanistan that that uh that will really suppress the terrorism problem. So let the federal government do what it's supposed to do, what it's exclusively good at, and move responsibility for security away from the, the, the central government, government and back down to the actors who are most interested and most close to the problem. Uh, so one of one of the Patrick, Patrick, tactics, I want to, Patrick, ahead, I'm sorry. I, I just need to take a short break. I, I, I will come back to you just as soon as we do, but uh, we're going to be back in just a few moments after a few words from our commercial sponsors. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the benefits of cloud computing. Now, what do you think the single biggest benefit to cloud computing is? In talking to our customers recently uh, about that very question, I was surprised with what came back with as, as a really resounding response, and that was that it's the convenience and the freedom that cloud computing affords them. The ability to get their work done from anywhere, whether it's at their office, at the courthouse, at home, or even if they're on vacation, they're able to get their work done where and when they need to get it done. Uh, the mobile aspect of things is also increasingly important. Well, with cloud-based software, you can access your data and software from your iPhone or your iPad, uh, your BlackBerry, uh, and other mobile devices. So for the uh, lawyers that are on the move, which is an increasing uh, proportion of lawyers, that's a, a really key benefit as well. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if anyone wants additional information on Clio, they can feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com.
It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. All right, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, uh, is not with us today. We are joined today by our guests, Patrick Smith, an airline pilot, author, and air travel columnist uh, who maintains uh, the website askthepilot.com and, and writes uh, the column by the same name for salon.com. And also by Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. And uh, before we went to break, uh, I interrupted Patrick. So let me ask you to uh, to pick up if you'd like to. I was uh, speaking of uh, legality issues. Um, you know, TSA's approach involves uh, a lot of bullying and intimidation, quite frankly. Um, not at every airport. And, and you know, granted, there are a lot of professional workers who uh, staff the checkpoints for TSA. But you know, I see a lot of yelling. I see a lot of enforcement of rules for the sake of rules. Um, that that just isn't right. And and what a lot of people don't realize is that TSA doesn't have actual law enforcement power. Um, they've got these spiffy blue shirts and, and badges that make them look like police officers, but they're not. And that's part of their approach, too, I think, is intimidating people into thinking that they have certain powers that they don't. And that that gets back to what I was saying about having a bureaucracy with a lot of power and no real accountability. And I'm hearing from certain circles now that, that certain people within TSA are lobbying to have that status changed where they will have weapons and will have law enforcement powers. And um, potentially that's that's quite scary. It was interesting that after the recent incident uh, in which uh, I think there was a potential explosive device in, a, in an air cargo uh, plane uh, that was uh, intercepted uh, by getting the tracking number. Uh, and when the uh, when President Obama spoke about this, uh, he spoke about this as a, as a failure of intelligence, as as a as a as an intelligence issue, not as a airline security issue. Should should these ter- I mean, is terrorism really the domain of intelligence and not air pl- air airlines or or TSA. Uh, How much can TSA do to really fight against terrorism here? Well, I think it's very important to have TSA there on the front lines, but that's only if they're doing the right things, if their screening methods are efficient, effective, and affordable. And right now, they're, to a large degree, none of those things. One of the ways that I think it's helpful to to think about security of all kinds, including security against terrorism, is, is to think in terms of layers there are many, many, many different layers of security vis-a-vis terrorism and airlines, starting at the at the further, furthest outermost layer is U.S. foreign policy, just determines whether there's going to be a lot of people interested in, uh, in attacking the United States government. Then foreign intelligence and diplomacy, things like that. Then, then you might have the visa issuance process. And just going quickly through some layers worth talking about, uh, the the security measures at international airports coming into the United States. Uh, you might you have at U.S. domestic airports uh, things like the Secure Flight Program. That's one I'm not not very fond of. 
magnetometers, various other things. Some of the unsung layers that are very, very important and have been in, in the incidents we've seen are individuals on the plane. In most of the most of the uh, cases that have happened recently, the last one of the last lines of defense is the guy sitting next to the underwear bomber or the person sitting next to Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. Um, they're the ones that step in and say, uh, "This something's going wrong here," and they make darn sure that that uh, these explosive devices, which aren't very well constructed anyway, aren't able to to explode. But a final layer that people almost always forget about. It's the design of, of airplanes. Uh, it's, it's harder than I think most people imagine to take a plane out of the sky. Not to, I'm not, not, not saying that we want to sort of be flip about or casual about explosives getting on board planes, but there's some question whether the underwear bomber would have been able to hit the right spot on the plane with the amount of explosive he had to do the kind of damage that, that would take, it, take the plane out of the sky. Likewise, shipping a, a toner cartridge worth of explosive into the United States could get lucky, but you also just might find it at the center of a pallet where everything that's around it, uh, it absorbs most of the blast, and you haven't actually taken a plane out of the sky. So it's it's harder to do. And Patrick made comment on on, on the, the the qualities that airplanes have uh, that are resistant to some of this stuff. But uh, but there's there's another layer there. There are a lot more layers. All of these are contributing to our safety, and it's hard to break through all of them. And that's good news. I think that's a great point overall. Um... As for the uh, specific um, point about airplanes and bomb resistance, um, I, I think that's true to a large degree. But remember, it was only, I think, six ounces of Semtex that blew up Pan Am Flight 103. Um, you know, meanwhile, we're not yet screening all cargo and freight packages uh, for explosives. Um, you know, we're putting scanning machines and body, body scanners in, in Des Moines and Pittsburgh, but we're still not scanning freight for explosives. Um, you know, we banned toner cartridges um, as if a terrorist isn't smart enough to figure out, well, I'll just put it somewhere else. Patrick, you've, you've traveled all over the world. Uh, you know, we've, I've heard a lot over the last couple of weeks and all the discussion about this, about other models of, of airline screening. And, and it seems that uh, Israel's model uh, keeps coming up uh, as, as an example of how to do this Better uh, and with less uh, less insult, I guess, to particular passengers. Uh, what have you seen out there? Do you have a sense of other models that might be better implemented than what the TSA is doing now? Well, I've been through security at Tel Aviv, um, and yeah, um, it, there's something about it, and it's hard to explain. It just it feels more professional. It feels more proficient. It, it's it's not as intimidating. It's not bullying. Um, and everybody says, well, why can't we do what the Israelis do? Um, well, mostly because Israel has really only one airport, and it's not even a particularly busy one. Scaling that up to the hundreds of major airports across North America, Europe, and elsewhere, I, I, I don't think we can do that um, on any affordable level. However, uh, granted, there are certain aspects of, of Israeli security that we should adopt, and, and really we are. We've had the consultants here working with TSA and DHS. The Israelis are good at what they call behavioral profiling and, and the layering of airport security, not this zero-tolerance fixation with, with you know going through every square inch of every person's bag. Our time is just about up for this program, uh, unfortunately. It goes by much too quickly, but I would like to give each of you an opportunity to have a, your final say on this topic and also uh, 
if you'd like to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you or get more information about you to do that as well. Uh, so, uh, Jim Harper, how about you? Let's start with you. Well, I appreciate being being on with you, and, and Patrick's insights are, are excellent. I uh, I think the problem here is that the government is not forthcoming with us about the security environment that we face, and it's relied for a lot of years now, uh, with the indulgence of the public, on stating that there is a, a serious security problem, and then acting however it wants, and the 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 strip search machine. Uh, with the the Hobson's choice of being groped instead, is something that the public seems not willing to tolerate. I'll be I'll be traveling during the holiday season and uh, will not participate in that. If I'm invited to, we'll just see what happens there. But but if the government were to come forward, uh, abandon some of the post 911 secrecy regimes that that don't really have much basis. There's no KGB affiliate of the of Al Qaeda. We'd, we'd be better off. We'd have a better conversation about this. And as a society, we'd be better able to balance the risks against the security measures that, that we're taking. So I appreciate to be, the chance to be on with you. If, if people want to find out more information about my organization and the work we do, the Cato Institute's website is at cato.org, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G. And a book that I recently co-edited with, with uh, two of my Cato colleagues is called Terrorizing Ourselves. Uh, how U.S. counterterrorism policy is failing and how it can be fixed, which I think is a helpful run through the very many difficult issues in in terrorism and counterterrorism policy. And I know, Jim, you also contribute to the Cato blog, uh, Cato at Liberty. And uh, you, you had a po- one, of the, one of your posts on this there recently uh, had a list of where people can go to report and discuss TSA abuses. That was uh, a November 20th post, where to report and discuss TSA abuses. So encourage uh, listeners to check that out as well. Uh, and Patrick, how about you? Your final thoughts? Well, I'd like to thank you for having me on, and uh, I agree wholeheartedly with everything Jim just said. Um, I'd like to reemphasize the fact that I think the body scanner issue is really just a symptom of a, of a greater problem in our approach to security, and I hope as Americans we, we stand back and start to acknowledge that, become more rational, and uh, demand a higher standard of security. And... Uh, if anybody wants to uh, write to me or discuss this with me, um, askthepilot.com is my uh, my website. And from there, you can uh, link through to any of my uh, articles at salon.com. It's a fascinating website. And uh, as the tagline on it says, everything you need to know about commercial flying, it's got, a, it's got a lot of information and recommend it. Well, thank you to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate your time and your thoughts and your insights on this issue. Um, we will... Uh, be back next week with another show of Lawyer to Lawyer. I'd like to remind our listeners that they can find this and a full archive of all of our past shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com and on iTunes in the podcast library. And also a reminder that uh, any of our listeners who want to get CLE credit for listening to our program can do so by going to Legal Talk Network and following the link there to the West Legal Ed Center and uh, signing up for the uh, CLE version of our podcast. Well, that about does it for this week's show. Thanks to all of you for listening and thanks to our guests for joining us. And we will be back next week. Talk to you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 
Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.